This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. I'm Helen Farmer. Fantastic to have you with us on the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Some amazing experts, authors and more. We were speaking to Dennis Liam Murphy about the blame game. When does it turn into addiction? And is it not just human nature to blame someone else for our failings and foibles? We'll be finding out. Talking about cracks and back pains with chiropractor Dr. Sharik Ali. Former Olympian Sarah Lindsay getting us ready in the gym to start running on the road. And if your kids are planning to go to medical school, how can they prepare for those interview questions? One doctor was in the studio to explain his expertise and what he looks for when he's sitting across from a prospective doctor. And Dr. Sahil John was in-house telling us about hip dysplasia in animals and answering all of your pet questions. All right, folks, it's confession time. Do you find yourself trying to hide the mistakes you make or push the blame for things you've done or haven't done onto other other people? Um, maybe you try to appear better than you are. Can be considered to be a bit of a narcissistic trait, but we're talking about blame. Maybe it's a coping strategy that you've learned over time. Maybe you know someone that's developed this problem. Um, let's talk this afternoon about the blame game because a book of that very name is out just yesterday. How to Recover from the World's Oldest Addiction by Dennis Liam Murphy. He's in the studio today as we ask, Has blame become an addiction? And uh, what can you do to break that pattern? First of all, congratulations on the publication of the book. Thank you so much. A lot of time in the making and absolutely worth it. Um, and lots to unpack over quite a short amount of time. I'm so ready. We're going to try our best. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you about something that you say in the book, which is about what the blame game can lead to, which is feelings of anxiety, depression, anger, shame, guilt, all symptoms of this blame addiction. And you believe that these feelings, these behaviours can be solved by a blame recovery process. Can you unpack that a little bit for us, Dennis? Yeah, I, if it's okay, I'll use a client example. I'd love that. So it was a, a client of mine came to me and he, he had two years of all of those things. And what it started with was two years before he went for an interview with one of the top social media companies. And it was over like six months interviews, 13 interviews. It was one for the top position. Mm-hmm. And he was really upset that he didn't get the role. So not only has he got all of those those emotions, he's also thinking he's got limiting beliefs. He thinks he self-sabotaged himself. But part of the recovery process is to get really honest with yourself. So I said something outrageous to him. I said, you didn't want the job. So can you imagine how annoying that must have been? Did he walk away? Almost. And so he couldn't because we were in a room. So, but otherwise, I'm sure he would have ran. Mm-hmm. And that's what I have this conversation often with my clients because I like to keep life simple now. And I look at the fact that he didn't get the job. So I know there's a bigger part of him that didn't want it, but we just probably need to unpack it to find that honest reason. Mm-hmm. So anyway, he's in so much denial telling me, no, he wanted it. Six months of interviews, 13 interviews. How can you be so insane to think I didn't want it? So we go backwards and forwards, and then he tells me a story of what happened during that that period. Now, I haven't got children, but I know enough parents that do. And when they hold their child for the first time, their priorities change. Big time. And what he didn't realize was during that interview process, he had his first child. So before that, he's going to be the best 
parent. He's going to be the best father, the best husband. He's working with one of the top companies in the world. He's going to make loads of money, loads of adulation. He had that picture all drawn out to perfection. Amazing. So he's happy. So mm-hmm. that's what is in his conscious mind. He's running towards that goal. Mm-hmm. But what he didn't realize was when he held his firstborn girl, all of his priorities changed. And he realized that working for that company, he was going to miss the first two years of his child's life. Mm-hmm. And that's what ultimately then became the unconscious driver to not get the job because his priority shifted from being married to that company as opposed to being the father that he ultimately wants to be. So in that moment when he had that realization, he broke down in tears when he realized his priority was the two years with his child. So that self-honest moment actually got rid of all the pain, the anxiety, the depression in that moment. What about blaming other people? Because we've had a number of messages about, about this. And I wondered, are we hardwired to blame other people to, as I said earlier, you know, get out of trouble to, I guess, diminish our own responsibility for things going so-called wrong? It's why I call it an addiction that's been around for thousands of years. It's like any addiction, it's fun. When you play a game, it's fun, and that's the blame game. But any game can get really exhausting and tiring over mm-hmm. a time. But there's benefits to it at the beginning. You've got children. Yeah, I've got I understand. Two. So do you remember this scenario? Have you ever, are you going to admit to this? Probably. Go on. So when they're, when they're learning to walk, run, you know, very early on, they might run around and they might hit themselves on a table. Have you or any of your friends gone over to the table and hit the table and said, bad table? Oh, that's interesting. I probably have, actually. I probably have. So wherever I deliver programs, whether it's here, whether it's in Saudi Arabia, America or Australia, wherever I do that, Everyone recognizes that. Mm. What do you think you're teaching your child in that moment? <laughs> that they need to take, that they, sh- not their responsibility. Then it's this inanimate object whose fault it is. So you're giving them a masterclass from day one in, them, mm. in how to blame. Mm-hmm. And then you're wondering why they're biting or hitting other children. Wow, that's where we are now. <laughs> and so that's what's happening. They're learning whenever you feel physically or emotionally hurt, you blame first and lash out. Mm-hmm. So it's a learned response. And what about passing between the generations in terms of what we see modelled in our own parents? Well, that's what I realised at some point. When I was unpacking this early on and I didn't really know what I was unpacking, Mm. I then looked at my parents and realised, well, they're expert blamers. So where did I get it from? Mm. It's obvious. And then where did they get it from? And so on and so on. So it just became really obvious that that was the connection. And I was brought up in an alcoholic family with, and also workaholic. So I had that connection with alcohol and, and with addiction. And it, so it was easy for me to make that connection at some point that we can't stop ourselves. Or can we? We're going to be talking about breaking the patterns yes. next. Until now. Joining That's us right. in the studio, <laughs> we have uh, author... Dennis Murphy's with us. His new book, The Blame Game, is out literally yesterday. And I wanted to ask you about blaming yourself because a lot of people, whether they realise it or not, live in a permanent state of poor me victimhood. And, I, and sometimes it takes a while to understand that, that mindset. But what if you can't stop blaming yourself for, you know, not getting that job, you know, for a relationship going wrong, your children not living up to their potential in your eyes? It seems like a, a vicious cycle to be living in. It really is. And um, if I take it to the extreme and make it really simple, there is only one person that you blame. And it's yourself. 
Because if you want to unpack it a bit more, if, if I'm blaming my boss for the reason I'm not happy, potentially it's more of a reflection of where I'm at. Maybe I don't want to be in that job or maybe they're reflecting personality traits that I don't like about myself. Mm-hmm. And I can use another example if you like. And it was actually my niece who went for a job interview and she came back to me and, and was really upset because she didn't get the job. And I went down that annoying route because she didn't wholeheartedly want the job. And she said, of course I did. And I said, well, what was the reason you wanted the job? And what do you think she said? The same as what all pretty much 18-year-olds say, money. Mm-hmm. And I said, now you're telling the truth. But before that, she's beating herself up, all those self-deprecating thoughts. I've got limiting beliefs. I'm not good at interviews. And I said, you are. You're really good at this interview to not get the job because you honestly didn't want it. Because I said to her, what is it about the job you didn't want? And she went, oh, it was going to be a three-hour commute. It was in an industry I didn't really want to work in. I didn't really like the building. And she listed off five things. And I said, you didn't want the job. And that's the uncomfortable place in a world of so much fake positivity and self-control and self-discipline we've lost that skill and that ability to self-reflect in that really uncomfortable, honest place. So the actual answer to that, the, the, the solution is very much centered around self-honesty. I want to go to this message. This is anonymous saying, this hits hard. My husband, now ex, had an affair three years ago and left the family home. At the height of the arguments and fallout, he told me that I was to blame for him being unfaithful. I wasn't fun. I wasn't affectionate. I rationally know that he needs to take responsibility, but his words haunt me. And I can't help thinking if I wasn't like that, our family would still be together. What comes to mind there, Dennis? First of all, it takes two to tango. And it would be both. They're both blaming each other. And can you tell me a relationship that isn't built on blame at some point? You're the reason I'm upset. No, you're the reason it's not working. No, you're the reason. And it just goes back and forth. And the end result of blame, after all the conflict, after all the anger and the frustration that comes with blame, the ultimate end is separation. And that's what happens in most relationships. So a lot of relationships, whether it's with your partner or whether it's with a boss in a job, that's why you're constantly looking for a new partner or a new boss because you're blaming each other and it's separation. Mm -hmm. And again, we're just not used to going to that place of maybe what was happening in most relationships is they're reflecting back the bit you need to work on yourself. And if it get, the longer it goes on, that's why you'll get one partner that will then go hyper lazy and the other partner to co- co- overcompensate will go hyper productive. And they're both showing each other, you probably need to get a bit more active and you need to probably learn how to relax more. And you're actually helping each other but you don't see it. And you're not communicating. And you're not communicating. And then what often happens is you need an extreme event to get you out of an extreme situation. Mm -hmm. And there's usually nothing more extreme than an affair. That's interesting, isn't it, about kind of taking two to tango? Because I've had a few couples who have been to counselling following infidelity and it's always like, well, you know, she's the one that cheated or he's the one that cheated, therefore the blame lies fully with them. And often the response is, yes, they might be the one that cheated, but there's going to be an awful lot going on behind the scenes to, to, to get to that point. I think what this listener's, and correct me if I'm wrong, kind of misinterpretation of the situation is, don't let those words haunt you about not being fun, not, not being affectionate. That's, that's, you know, 
that sounds like more like his his issues but there might be something that you might have you probably did have a role in that relationship falling apart and if I was with that lady and I knew more then I could explain more but if I was to approach that generally she probably wasn't as much fun as she was at the beginning who is and that was (laughs) and that might have been because like when I'm working with a client and they say something like this I will ask them how long will you admit to that you wanted out of that relationship? Mm-hmm. And they might say three years. I've had some clients say I'd never wanted to get married. So they've got three years, 10 years of evidence to prove that the other partner's the problem. But actually what they've got evidence of is they, didn't, they weren't as invested in that relationship anymore. So again, they needed something to help them make a difficult decision that they've been thinking about for years. Now, an interesting message here, um, talking about blame. And I had kind of promised myself that this was going to be a Prince Harry free zone. But I do want to get your take on this. I'm asking, what's his take on the blaming spree in Prince Harry's book? Which I think is a really interesting take because there's been quite a few people in the crosshairs. And I don't know how productive that's been for him or indeed future relationships. What's your take? Have you read it? I haven't, for the, by the way. I haven't. But a lot of people... I've read way too much about it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I know through osmosis, I know about it. And a lot of people have said, have you seen all the blame that's going on there? My immediate response is, we're getting caught up in the fact it's a royal family. But the way I see it is that it's just a mirror to show us what's going on in our families all the time. Of course. So that for me is a great thing on the bigger scale. It's, It's a reflection again. It's like, am I doing that? with my family, with my kids. And I think it's, if you want to look at the benefit, that's the benefit because he is, he's, he's teaching us all. This is the side effect of being in that blame addiction, as I will call it. He doesn't know what else to do. Mm -hmm. And it does come with short term gains. When you're in that victim, poor me, it comes with benefits, but those benefits aren't sustainable. They're not long lasting until they turn into something extreme. And of course, he's giving his kids a masterclass in how to play the victim card. Mm -hmm. But again, is that different to any other family? If this is ringing any bells, alarm bells, raising red flags, or people just want to learn more about the concept of blame, whether it is self-blame or that in a dynamic of relationship, what's the best way of getting the book, Dennis? It's on Amazon. Yay. It's on... um, Pretty much it's going to be available in lots of places. It's sold out, which was amazing. Congratulations. And so people are back on the waiting list. And yeah, so it's, it's in all. Oh, you're beaming with pride about your baby. But yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. it's been 10 years, as I said, in the making. 10 years in the making, but only out this week. Yeah. If you do want details of the book, I'd be happy to send you a link. Just send me the word blame so you can have a read there. And in terms of website, anywhere people can find out more, more about you as about an entrepreneur and a coach. Yes. So my website, my personal website is DennisLiamMurphy.com. My corporate leadership training website is roundtable.global. And, and I'm on LinkedIn, which is of my, my chosen social media platform. We'll talk about that off air. I still don't, <laughs> still don't understand it. Dennis, thank you. Absolute pleasure to have you with us. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is Afternoons on Dubai Eye 103.8. Whenever I start to think about Backath, I immediately roll my shoulders back, feel very self-conscious about my atrocious posture because me and so many other people have text neck, Workstations not set up properly. 
are you guilty to? Let me know. Back issues becoming more and more prevalent, even in younger age brackets, sedentary lifestyle, lack of exercise, desk jobs. So how can we differentiate what's so-called normal and when's it more of a concern? Chiropractor uh, Dr. Sharag Ali from the Spinal Health Centre is with us in the studio and you've brought a friend. I, I don't want to say a prop because I, I want to attach a bit more meaning to our, 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 our bony pal here. This is Skelly. This is Skelly. <laughs> and uh, Skelly has a important role here. Well, let's talk us through a little bit about what's coming into clinic and maybe you can show us on Skelly some of the issues that you're treating. So how long have you been in the UAE for? UAE now, just over 10 years. And have you noticed in that time any kind of trends or changing behaviours in terms of what, what people are coming to see you with? Sure. Um, I was interviewed on that with Forbes and they asked me that exact question and it is the prevalence of these spinal-related disorders mm -hmm. and our work style, which is getting more and more and more prevalent. We're just going to turn you, to massive thumbs, aren't we, one day? This is my indeed, worry. Indeed. <laughs> it's going to be off. And you alluded to Tech's neck. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is... Who can get away with this? Well, who show can... us a little bit on Scully then, um, for people watching on Facebook, and we can, we can explain as well what happens when you do have Tech's neck, because um, we're seeing a, a change in the, in the curvature of the spine. Sure. I mean, for the benefit of the listeners who can't see, this is, this is Skelly here, as uh, Helen, you've I've named them. <laughs> Labelled. <laughs> I, I don't know if it's a man or woman. It's basically a, a plastic spine is in the studio. It's a plastic spine and it demonstrates perfectly what, how our body is designed to be aligned. Mm -hmm. Now, when we're born and as we go through, we become weight-bearing, the spine has a certain alignment. All right? We're designed to be straight, meaning our head should be directly on top of our pelvis, nice and straight when we look from the front. When we look from the side, we're actually designed to have a curve. A curve in the neck, a curve through the mid-back, and a curve in the lower back, sort of like an S-shaped. That is our configuration. And that's our baseline reading when we assess someone. We want to see how closely are we to this norm, because this norm will determine how well we're performing and any deviation from that mm -hmm. will determine, well, will be an indicator of where illness, the, yeah, pain, Where that issues. problem might be rooted. Text neck, yes. you asked for. Tell text us. neck, indeed. Now, okay. when we're using text neck or even when we're at the desktop, mm -hmm. us speaking right now, tend, what we tend to do is that neck starts to become flexed. It becomes flexed and it creates a forward pressure on the joints, the discs, and that has the potential to irritate nerves. Now, look, we are designed to bend, move and twist. We're not, you know, we're not so delicate. Mm -hmm. But it's when this becomes habitual. Prolonged. Prolonged, mm -hmm. postures, sustained. Mm -hmm. When it becomes not only at work, but the work style goes into the home style, lifestyle. And we're still continuing in that strained position. Mm -hmm. That's going to have knock on effect on the spine, especially the neck, and that will create shortening of muscles with the potential for irritation, and that, if neglected and left alone, will have impacts on the body. Now, I don't know if it's just my Instagram algorithm, but what I'm getting an awful lot of right now on, on Reels are people cracking their own backs. Lots of postures, lots of, I don't know if the sound effects are being added. It's very satisfying indeed. And I'm curious if to get a chiropractor's point of view on how you feel about it. And some of them are kind of so-called fitness experts. Some people are wanting to be doctors. On cracking your back at home, how do you feel about that? Well, 
cracking's cool. It feels nice. <laughs> does, I'll, I'll do that here right now. Oh! I mean, <laughs> I've just cracked my fingers. And yeah, it's, it's soothing. Um, and yes, many videos, if you look online, will, you'll see these cracks and these loud sounds, which, which, is, which is great. I mean, it's not what we do here. We do something different. But I would say if that is the, that's what you're looking for, you don't really need to go to a professional for that, do you? Mm. You can just ask your partner to walk over your back, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No. So while that's cool, <laughs> what we do is very different. It's mm. important to establish the underlying cause of one's problem. That is giving the person a need to sort of alleviate themselves. And if one is feeling the need to, to, to release or, or self or continually stretch or continually crack, as, as you say, Really, it's important to find out, well, what's going on? And is there anything underlying that we're missing mm -hmm. that is a cause for concern? Um, Lisa's saying, ever since I gave birth three years ago, back pains have become a normal companion to my life. Is this common and could Cairo help? So are you able to explain a little bit about what happens during pregnancy? And of course, during birth, we don't know um, what Lisa's birth was like. But it's a, it's a major event for the female body, it's, it's safe to say. Um, and how could potentially you be helping Lisa to get over these back pains even years after delivering? Indeed, indeed. Well, first of all, Cutest. Bless our mothers. <laughs> Bless Quite our right. mothers. It's something that I've not personally experienced. And it, though oh, I yeah. do know it puts a tremendous amount of strain mm -hmm. on our spine. Uh, the question was twofold. And I think the second part um, we need to understand first is that birth process, it's, it's a normal process. It does put stress on the spines. What happens is prior to the birth, we see in our modern days that the mother has been subjected to a lot of other stresses, which has deviated her away mm -hmm. from an ideal spinal position, mm -hmm. which would then make a natural process like the birth process leave knock-on effects on the spine, which is going to make sense. Make problems. Later on. You so know? how could a chiropractor help someone who might be having, and Lisa, I think a lot of my friends, the same kind of this lower back pain after giving birth. And then don't forget, after you've given birth, you're often bending over to breast or bottle feed. You're lifting around a baby. I was misaligned, really misaligned for ages, just from hoiking a toddler around in my hip for years. You know, it's a lot. Well, look, I'm the bearer of good news. Yay! All right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. um, there is hope. Absolute, there's hope. And the number one thing is when you mentioned that it's very common, people commonly, and that's the number one mistake people make. Because it is so common, and one mother will speak to another mother and another, and they'll say, yeah, I've me got too, the same me too, issue. Me too, me too, me too. That, that common occurrence gets taken for normal. It's not normal to be in pain, regardless of how many childbirths you have, mm -hmm. if you're getting checked. Mm -hmm. The key is to assess your spine to see if you have a problem, just like you would with any other healthcare discipline, just like you would check your teeth, you check know. your eyes. I think, you just get, I think we just get used to living in an element of pain a lot of the time. And as you're saying, confusing normality with, you know, it being, it being common. Lisa, get yourself in. I'll give you, I'll send you his details off air. Um, I want to ask you this question. This is from Samantha. Um, thanks, saying, thank you for talking about tech neck. Is that the same as having a dowager's hump? Something my mum has and something I'm keen to avoid. That description, the dowager's hump. It's, it's, it's a pretty, it's a pretty, it's a, 
pretty real one, isn't it? But for anyone who's not familiar with that, we're talking about that kind of lump at the top of the spine. It can look incredibly aging. I don't know if it's dangerous as such, though. In, indeed. And um, when I was many moons ago, when I was studying and they mentioned the Dowager's hump, it, it, it's a scary thought. And that's the last thing we want, you know, not least aesthetically and for, for the health of our future, yeah. future health of our spine. Function. So text neck is something that uh, does develop and can lead to the appearance of the Dowager's hump. Mm -hmm. Because as, as I alluded to before, when we're forward flexed, when our, uh, our heads are continually forward on that phone, it's putting knock-on effects on the cervical spine, meaning the neck. And we, where we should have a smooth curve, it starts to lean forward. Now, to compensate, the upper thoracic spine, which is the upper back, which tends to get related to that dowager's hump, well, that will only follow. Mm -hmm. That will follow, and that will create untold stress on the spine. And you know what? But because our body's not really going to function leaning forward. So what are we going to do to compensate? Mm -hmm. We're going to overarch in the lower back. Mm -hmm. And so we've got this skewed position, which, which from the outside we not, might not always be able to recognise. And that's why it's essential to get checked to understand what is our internal alignment and avoid these problems. Last question um, from AJ saying, what does the doctor think about posture alignment um, appliances? I'm seeing a lot of these being advertised as well. So I guess something that, you know, posture correction braces you can wear, little things that kind of remind you that you are be putting your shoulders back. Any big waste well, of money well, or any you, truth in them? Well, here's the thing. I mean, I'm not an expert in... Gadgets, the gadgetry. Or, 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 you know. But what I do know is that whatever we do, we need to do something that's going to keep our posture balanced mm -hmm. and, and aligned. I'm an advocate more for training our body, our musculature itself to be upright mm -hmm. and for our bodies to be aligned because that's what's going to determine our health rather than using assistance. Yeah. You know, I see that more like a like we wouldn't want a walking stick to rely on walking in the same way we don't want um, continual bracing to become dependent on that. Good answer. We've run out of time. I haven't run out of questions. We'd love to have you back. Thank you so much for coming in and bringing Scully as well. Thank you. Um, for anyone that does want to find you and have some one-on-one -on -one treatment, of course, explore any issues they might be facing. Um, you can be found at the Spinal Health Centre. If you want to talk to Ali's details, just send me the word back and I will send it your way. Wishing you a happy, healthy 2023 and a safe drive back to Healthcare City. So be careful on those roads. Thank you. It is Afternoons with me, Helen Farmer. This content is for informational purposes only and does not intend to substitute professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Helping you guide, get ready for a run today. We're three-time Olympian, elite personal trainer, the founder of Raw, Sarah Lindsay. It's just opened in uh, in downtown, so I just want to say thank you for making the time. Lovely to have you with us. How are you? I'm really good. Thank you very much, Helen. Uh, tell us, for anyone who's not familiar with the concept around Raw, it's kind of personal training with a bit of a difference. What is that difference? Well, it's only private personal training. So people are only training with their trainer. So um, it's always private. It's always exclusive. You can always access the equipment as, you know, as you're supposed to. So the program can be delivered as it was designed. Mm -hmm. um, so it always has a really lovely atmosphere. And this, the 
the major upside for a lot of people is obviously that personalised care and hitting their goals, but also avoiding injury as well. It's people who are incredibly well trained on great bits of kit, really working with someone to make sure they're getting the most out of those movements and motions. Yeah, absolutely. You know, people come in with their goals and that's obviously decided by them. And then we make a plan and design how they're going to get there. So we facilitate whatever somebody else's goal is. Now, I'm not going to embarrass you, but you've worked with some incredibly big names in the UK, the US. The transformations that you guys post are just jaw-dropping. But it's not just for the A-listers and celebs and people who want that kind of Instagram. It's about getting into your fitness goals, you know, getting back into exercise after a long time, first time. And I think this is a really good example. I'm not a runner. I am not built to run. My orthopedic surgeon will agree with me. Um, <laughs> but for people that want to, and I envy people that run, I really do. I, I would love to have that sense of freedom and just ability for one thing. Um, so we'll talk a little bit about what we can do in the gym to prepare for a run. But I wanted to get your take. Do you run much, Sarah? Um, So I walk more than I run. I unfortunately, I'm kind of riddled a little bit with injuries from my sporting days. So I used to be an athlete for 20 years and I had lots of crashes over the years. So hitting the barrier at 30 miles an hour headfirst meant that um, I do have to be super careful with what I do. You know, I'm I'm very positive and I look for what I am able to do and I get the most out of that type of training. Um, And I, I would love to run more, but I do have to be careful. I don't do lots and lots of miles. So let's talk about what the work you can do in the gym to avoid injury um, when you are. What's some of the common mistakes or the ways we can help people overcome that? I mean, I think one of the common mistakes is that people who want to start running will just go out and run. (laughs) You know, they do as much as they can and they're not prepared for it and they're not conditioned for it. So um, it depends on the individual weakness. So I think it's really good to make sure that you work on your core, you work on your mobilizing um, and make sure that you're in a good condition to start doing a sport in the first place mm-hmm. and you can't just go out and start running 10 miles at a time you know you have to build that up gradually um, and take your time make sure you're recovering properly as well between training sessions the recovery is key to make sure that you can go back out and make it a regular thing and build up slowly I think that's the case in January in general isn't it it's like I'm going to be healthy in 2023 and then it's like oh, I can't actually steer my car because my arms are so sore yeah. from going too hard in the gym. And it, it tends to be, so, I mean, I'm guilty of this in the past as well, you know, all or nothing. Yeah, people do do that. And I think January is the obvious time because people, a lot of people feel bad. You know, they've sort of fallen off the wagon and they've eaten everything over Christmas and it's um, a sort of time for celebration. So people are drinking a lot and don't feel like exercising. And then it comes to January where everybody's feeling a little bit down, a little bit depressed and squishy. And then, fluffy around the yeah, edges. Mm-hmm. And, then go, and then go full on and go, you know, head first in and then few days in they're too sore to go back to the gym for a week and then they think well this isn't for me you know I'm, I'm in too much pain here forget <laughs> it like you've like read um, my diary from the last few Januaries and, and I think that's why I like the fact that the rack's got a few different options you know you can you can do a one mile you can do a 5k you can do that that half mile. a lot of people saying uh, walk don't run an ex-runner who only walks now Mahesh saying cycling's more fun <laughs> Do you know what? I love cycling, to be fair. But I think, in in honesty, you've said this in the the past, you know, motion is lotion. You know, just moving is, is so, so important. And getting to know your body, its strengths, its weaknesses. Now, something that does motivate me is going shopping for some new gym gear <laughs> um, but when we're looking for trainers whether that is in the gym or you know out on the road what are, what are some things we can be looking for and by all means if there's any brand names that you think do a, do a great job Sarah go for it well I think I mean there's a lot of 
running shoes and there's a lot of different brands out there and I think you do have to go with a brand that is designed for running forget the fashion um you know forget what looks good you have to go with a running shoe and then you just have to try you know get some good advice so a lot of the actual running stores will give you advice and you can get on the treadmill and they can check your gait and give you advice of what shoes are suitable for your body um and then you do need to prepare so don't put those shoes on day you know straight on the day uh, of the competition make sure you get some serious miles in not so much that the trainer technology starts to break down and they become old and tired but enough to know that you can do the miles in them whatever that's going to be mm-hmm. without getting blisters um, and make sure that they're comfortable and they support your body properly what about nutrition when you were competing you were obviously keeping a very very tight look on, on what was what was going in that's not the case anymore in terms of the competing but you you look take care of yourself what should we be looking for when it comes to a good post or actually no we'll do pre-event yeah but it's you know it's pre and post you know before before you compete you never want to change anything on the day of competition so it has to be practiced Mm -hmm. so don't try and do anything new or you know have those five cups of coffee instead of the two you normally have and then end up yeah exactly (laughs) um so Make sure that you've practiced it first. Do, you know, a dress rehearsal, if you like, of what the day could potentially be. If you want to do your best or you don't want to get, you know, injured and you want to be well prepared. Um, but, you know, you're you're doing an endurance event, so you do want to have plenty of carbs. You want to make sure that the glycogen stores are full of energy. Um, and then afterwards, you know, you've put your body through so much, especially if it's something that, you know, you've done for the first time, you need to make sure you recover. You know, recovery is absolutely key, not just after the event, but after your training sessions leading up to the event as well. You have to make sure that you recover as best you can so that you're feeling good on the day. Before you had um, any big events as a speed skater, what would you be having before? I mean, we trained a lot you know we were training six to nine hours a day every day so we'd be doing hundreds and hundreds of laps so I was actually eating around 6,000 calories sometimes more on a daily basis Um, as you go into competition you start to taper down the amount of laps you're doing the volume of work that you're doing and you start to sharpen up and try and get those really fast lap times in Uh, so we did eat less going in but that was just the sort of natural requirements if you like but I always timed my food a lot around recovery so I ate over eight if you like after training to make sure I was so terrified of not being able to complete the next training session and or not being as fast as I should be um that I never considered health even to be honest um and definitely not my weight or what I looked like that was absolutely um, never a priority to me. It was just, how am I going to perform at this next training session? So I was always just, you know, you can't get that from chicken and rice. You know, you did have to eat um, a little bit of naughty stuff as well, Mars which I'm, I'm more careful now. I don't train like that anymore. So I do have to be a little more careful. Um, I just want to say um, thank you for making the time today um, for, for being with us, because I know it's all happening with Raw. Uh, we've had lots of messages on running. We are going to be going to be talking about this a little bit more over the coming weeks um asking about life expectancy of trainers i've got a guy who can help us with that coach lee's going to be coming in he is one of the running coaches for the uae but for anyone that does want to come down and work out with you and the team tell us a little bit more about raw where are you how can we get in touch and, and what's it looking like in reality to come down and say hi oh well we we do um complimentary consultations so if you are interested in training um there's no obligation there's no pressure you know just come in have a tour have a chat find out we'll find out what your goals are and see if um what we offer is appropriate for you 
Uh, we're downtown. We're in the Burj Vista. Um, so just opposite the Burj. A really, really lovely location, actually. Living the Dubai life, girl. It's, it's so nice. It's great to have you here. It Thank really, you. really is. And it's already um, become quite the place to see and be seen. Um, the, the location itself is absolutely gorgeous. So well, thank I'll see you. see you tomorrow morning. You might see me tomorrow <laughs> morning. Oh my goodness, please be kind. Please I'll be kind. I've got, to, I've got to put faders up in the studio. You can't, you can't break, me, okay. break me that much. I'll make sure you can still lift your arms. Thank you. It is interview season in medical school. So is your child, your teen, one of the people who are dreaming of becoming a doctor, working in healthcare? And uh, will this stage dictate how they get on in that career? Joining us now in studio is Dr. James Coey. He is the Associate Chair and Associate Professor in Anatomy at St. George's University. Um, so we are talking about receiving some students from the UAE, hopefully, um, and really finding out a little bit more about what happened but go behind the scenes. Dr. James, thank you for being with us today. Why did you want to work in the medical profession, if you don't mind me asking? That's a great question, Helen. Thank you for having me. Um, I remember many moons ago being asked that question at medical school. And I think that's probably why I'm here speaking with you now. I think that there is no generic answer. And that's the issue um, that when you are posed that question at medical school interview, you tend to provide something that a careers counsellor or a book has told you to say. Mm-hmm. You're saying what, the, what you think they what, want you to ex- hear. Exactly. And, you know, for me, it was really the, my interest in science and my interest in working with people. And Mm. we often talk about the art of medicine. Um, And I was a bit geeky, but actually like people. So uh, that's what brought me into it. And it's a wonderful profession and and a noble profession. And it's certainly kept me entertained for the past 25 years. And well-traveled as well, which I think is a a fantastic opportunity for so many students. I think that's changed so much when we look at things like telehealth and the way the industry's changed, certainly if the result of the pandemic, but also just the way of technology moving on, industries changing. So I'm sure it's, it's all, it's moving on a pace, but I'm sure some of the processes are still very much relevant. And this is what you're able to help us with today. You know, tell us a little bit about the whys. You know, why are medical schools conducting those interviews as part of that evaluation process? What are they looking for in potential candidates? Sure. I mean, I, even before the whys, it's the how, because mm-hmm. medical school interviews um, have evolved in the same way that medicine's evolved. We currently live in an era of evidence-based medicine. Um, But we still believe in the fact that 80% of a diagnosis is based on your ability to listen to a patient, um, your ability to be empathetic, to be compassionate. Human. And those things often aren't measured necessarily at high school. Mm -hmm. Um, So an interview gives us an opportunity and the personal statement that comes before that gives us as the interviewer... um, the opportunity to, to have a little bit of a, a, a delve into the person that will be ultimately a doctor in the future. How is it measured or is it not as such? When we think about quantifying some of these skills, obviously qualifications are a little bit different, but could you not have the most amazing candidate who's got incredible you know, accolades and references and grades, but they've got zero emotional intelligence? That's my concern. I've interviewed hundreds of medical students um, and I've read thousands of personal statements. Um, and a generic uh, student who's got straight A's and, you know, is stellar doesn't necessarily carry the characteristics that are required mm-hmm. to actually make a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Um, a typical question at medical school interview would be, why do you want to be a doctor? The wrong answer is to say, to save lives or to make a difference. 
Now, ultimately, you will save lives and you could make a difference. But when you interview patients when they leave the hospital, okay, the people that make the difference aren't the doctors that come in for five minutes. And most of the people online um, or not on air will have been patients at some point. Absolutely. Yeah. And the doctors come in in a flurry and spend maybe five or six minutes with the patient and then disappear. The people that actually make a difference at, um, in a hospital situation when you are sick, when you are vulnerable, mm-hmm. are often the people who are paid least in the hospital, Absolutely. healthcare assistants. Mm-hmm. So that's something I'm very passionate about. And I, I'm not saying that if you say that you want to save lives or make a difference or help... <laughs> They're not going to show ba- you the door. No, yeah, not, not at all. But I want you to be able to you talk about qualify. You need mm. to qualify and quantify. And you need to be able to demonstrate an interview that you have got those human, um, altruistic, compassionate uh, characteristics required to function as a doctor beyond the numbers because everyone's going to have good grades. I was about to say, <laughs> everyone's, everyone's going to have the A's yeah. or whatever, however they're grading these, mm-hmm. uh, these, these teens these days. Um, so how about preparation then? Well, how can um, teens, even, you know, ahead of time, ahead of being called in for an interview, be getting in the right headspace to make sure they're coming in and being able to deliver the, the message to ultimately get them through the door. I've been talking about this at a number of schools recently. I think that the starting process is actually old school. It's a self-reflective diary. And I ask all the potential medical students to go out and buy a old school copy book and start reflecting on the whys, mm-hmm. to your point. Um, you know, why do you want to be a doctor? Where do you want to be in the future? Um, Another pitfall often at medical school interviews is what type of doctor do you want to be? And if you go down the line of I want to be a neurosurgeon, I might be more inclined to show you the door because you have no idea what neurosurgery is actually like until you do it. That's the whole purpose of medical school. Mm. So when we're looking at you know, thousands of applicants for a very few, place, very few places at medical school, we're really looking at the people that have got the emotional intelligence, the social intelligence, obviously the intellectual intelligence, but we also want to make sure that they have the ability to, to get through this journey mm-hmm. because it doesn't stop. I went to medical school in the 90s, as we just talked about, um, and I'm still doing exams. Mm-hmm. So you I'm need to have... still learning every day. Still learning because medicine's always evolving to, mm-hmm. to one of your previous points. Can I ask you then, in terms of areas of medicine that you're seeing particular interest in from this next generation, and as I said, this, this field's changing all the time, where, where are people getting excited about? We live in this era of evidence-based medicine, which is why we need to pr- practice evidence-based medical education. That's a phrase that I coin frequently because... In the same way that the way that I learnt was somewhat anquitated, you know, sitting in a lecture hall, we now know that um, that students' attention span, and probably most of the parents listening to this will be aware of this, is somewhere between seven and twelve minutes. So we have to teach medicine in a more um, a more modern, technologically advanced fashion, which is what we do. Um, but we also need to be able to prepare our graduates, regardless of what medical school you go to for the practice of medicine, for the modern practice of medicine, which does involve new technologies, robotic surgery. I was driving um, through Dubai this afternoon. I saw a big advert of a robot um, advertising robotic surgery. It's not the robot that does the surgery, but the robot that assists with the surgery. Mm. So we have to prepare ourselves. It's impossible to future-proof the future practice of medicine, but what you can do is at least make a diverse group of students, and that's what we really need to focus on, is diversity, mm-hmm. um, 
having a group of students and then subsequently doctors that are adaptable, okay, that have those skills that I referred to at the start, but also are willing to work hard because this is a journey to reiterate that point. It doesn't end when you get your degree. Absolutely. And I think it's always good to, and I say this to any friend who's about to have a job interview, it's like you've got to want to be there as much as, you know, it, it works both ways, you know. So what should students be looking for in a medical school then, James? I, I think that's a great point. This is a two-way process. It has to be a match. Yeah, it has to be a match. And different medical schools do teach in different ways. Um, the curriculum that St. George's provides is, is a US-focused curriculum, but we have graduates that practice in 50 countries. So we have to engender the core foundation that's required to build on but when you are a student going to an interview, you shouldn't be humble. You shouldn't be, you know, um, shy or, retri- or, or retiring. And another question that is often a pitfall at the end of the interview is, have you got any questions for us? Yes. And you must have a question for them. What would be a good one? Um, you should not necessarily, I, I always go back to what you shouldn't do, because essentially if you put yourself in my shoes when I've got hundreds of applicants per place, I'm often looking for, for a reason to not Yeah, actually, you're, you're eliminating. Yeah, I'm eliminating. So <laughs> you shouldn't basically ask them a question about the curriculum because you should know about the curriculum before mm-hmm. you walk in the door. Mm-hmm. Yeah? You should, shouldn't ask them necessarily about the destinations of the graduates. You know, what you can do, and this is a positive answer to that question, is what can I do between this interview and hopefully gaining a place at your medical school to facilitate my arrival and mm-hmm. facilitate my, enable me to land um, with, yeah, uh, and yeah. start running. That's a positive way of ending an interview. Now, looking back when you went to medical school in the 90s, what do you wish you'd known? What I probably still have yet to know. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I've, I've, I've um, you know, without giving you a tongue twister, I, I think, I mean, there's a good answer to that. Actually, it's very personal. So I trained in surgery, um, and a lot of the students age 17, 18, often male, um, want to be surgeons because they think that's the superhero in medicine. Yeah, Charlie okay. Big Potatoes. Yeah, Exactly. Mm-hmm. I trained in surgery. I got to a very good surgical program in Oxford. Um, and at that program, I asked everybody that I worked with two questions. If you had your time over again, okay, would you pursue the same um, path and everybody pretty much said yes the second one was if I were to be your son would you recommend that I pursue your path Mm -hmm. and a lot of them said no and that's why I I left surgery after qualifying and I went into tropical medicine and you know and here I am speaking to you now well, it's been so insightful. Thank you for sharing your own experiences and offering up some, some wisdom and insights for anyone, whether they are teens or you know late teens and looking to get into this process. If anyone wants some further advice, any resources, what's the best way of getting in touch, James? Well, we have um, an MOU with a group here called Health Education Student Support Services based in Dubai. And that's part of the reason I'm passing through. Um, and their role really is to try and facilitate the passage of an interested student into medical school. And it doesn't necessarily have to be St. George's University, but what we are doing is a series of um, events with local schools, um, 
couple that I won't mention the names of, but I was at just over the course of the past week, whereby I try to give something like this, mm-hmm. you know, that's somewhat inspirational, I hope, yes. um, but somewhat motivational. I reinforce that part about, you know, keeping the self-reflective diary. And we're going to have a series of events beyond that. So we're going to have, we understand that, you know, it's quite difficult to get uh, medical work experience because some other parts of your um, application have to demonstrate, an, you know, an interest in voluntary work, often some observership. So we will be doing some mini-med programs um, coming up um, and I'll be back not only next month, but um, but also in June. Well, thank you so much for making the time. Really, really useful. Um, you can find, as we said, Dr. James Curry, Associate Chair and Associate Professor in Anatomy at St. George's University in Granada. He's based out of the northeast of England, but as we said, coming back between here and the UAE. This is Pets and Vets on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. With ProPlan, groundbreaking science, life-changing nutrition. Fantastic to have you with us. We are talking all things animal today and the photos coming through are just glorious. We've had Nina gardening. We've had Maggie and Dave hanging out in the back of the car. Dashi warming herself in front of a new heater. I could do with a heater. And delighted to be joined this afternoon by Dr. Sahil John, surgical head at Pet First Veterinary Clinic on Hesse Street. Been in the UA 10 years. Known as Dr. John to his beloved uh, patients, both furry and non-furry. Great to have you with us. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much, Helen, for having me at the show today. I want to know about your, the, the menagerie you have at home. Do you have any pets? Yeah, I do have a Labrador and it's a girl. Her name is Patsy. Aww. And we got her as a small puppy and uh, she's two and a half years old. Is it true about around. Labradors? They just eat anything and everything? Oh, yeah. They, they are considered to be a walking uh, bins, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. that was fr- We had some friends and they had a dog called Alfie. And Alfie would eat whole packs of butter and, yeah. you know, just raw chicken from, from the side. It was, I've never seen anything like it. It's like there, there was no awareness of hunger or, yeah. or lack of hunger. It was like seafood eat the food. Yeah, that's correct. That's okay. very correct. You describe well the Labrador. <laughs> <laughs> well, lots of questions coming in for you today. But before we get to that, um, I wanted to come to one of your areas of interest, which is hip dysplasia in animals. Um, let's talk about dogs in particular. Are there any specific breeds that are predisposed to getting hip dysplasia? And can you explain a little bit about the condition in general? Sure, sure, definitely. I'll start first of all with hip dysplasia. So dysplasia is mainly derived from Greek word of malformation. And hip is, of course, a joint. Um, well, we always consider that large breed of dogs are more predisposed towards it. For example, like German Shepherd, St. Bernard, um, Labradors even. So again, like those breeds are more commonly presented with such kind of condition. And mainly uh, in ideal situation, like um, hip bone or hip joint is basically a ball and socket joint. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So in this situation, like, you know, in ideal condition, they both need to grow together in a same rate. So in a situation where there is malformation or it's called dysplasia, in that situation, like they don't grow at the same rate. Okay. So this leads to uh, such kind of instability, which leads to pain, discomfort for the pets. However, we always, as we always consider like, you know, large animals are more predisposed to, to such kind of condition, but we do find out that small animals, even cats, are prone to get such kind of a condition. Now, I first heard about this in babies because this is something that, you know, a lot of little ones might get diagnosed with quite early after birth, actually, and sometimes might need to wear a brace to, to help, you know, their body support in, in that growth. How do you treat it in animals? Right. Well, uh, just to mention a little bit about competitive studies, as you mentioned about the babies. Well, in human medicine, um, some of the in some of the countries, people practice routine ultrasounds 
until the age of three months for babies. And there was a very amazing study done back in 2010 by vets. And uh, they were planning, okay, how, how we can also try to diagnose um, hip dysplasia in puppies as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. So they took a group of uh, dogs and they uh, did the ultrasound scanning between the age of 16 to 49 days. And the results were quite unremarkable and almost unconclusive, which leads to a very important thing and understanding of this condition is because uh, we always say that humans can be born with dysplasia, whereas dogs, they develop it. So it's not a case of, you know, there's puppies and they go in for a routine check with their vet. You know, they might be having a look at, you know, bone formation, that might be an x-ray. This could be something that develops later. So what are the signs you should be looking out for as a pet owner? Right. Well, when it comes to signs, uh, most of the time you see the pet is reluctant to do the physical exercise. Uh, laying most of the time, find it difficult to get up. Uh, I would say in cats in particular, which is also a rare kind of situation, like they would find very sensitive on the hip area. They would be licking the hip area more or they would be hesitant to jump and climb. So such kind of things, like if you observe, um, this could be one of the conditions that could lead to dysplasia. And then presumably come to see you. There might be an ultrasound and x-ray. You'll be looking at that joint malformation. What about treatment then? Is it, right. is it about pain management? Is it about building muscle to support the joint? How do you do it? Well, again, like when it comes to the vet, first of all, the uh, first thing is physical examination. So in physical examination, we perform the hip extension. Uh, and of course, like the dogs or the cats who are having such kind of condition, it's painful for them. Mm -hmm. uh, second thing, Again, part of the physical examination, uh, we perform uh, Ortolani sign, which is also some kind of test, which tests the laxity of the hip. Uh, but again, our good diagnosis is only achieved by the radiographs. Uh, so in that situation, we have to sedate them and then to obtain a good quality x-rays. Um, I would like to touch a little bit more about the age, like, you know, what is appropriate appropriate age and when we should be doing such kind of examinations. Um, in literature, it's believed to be that um, uh, at the age of three months, it's okay. You can test it, you can check it because that is quite the age where there is a ligament which is attached, uh, which is attaching ball to the socket, anchoring it. And um, it's uh, considered to be that that ligament can tear and then lead to dysplasia. However, three months is very early to check dysplasia, especially on the radiographs. So ideally, I would advise like six months of time is quite fine uh, for us to check it. And I wanted to come back to what treatment can look like because uh, it's, uh, it's really important to raise awareness, but also to kind of demystify what might happen if you do get a diagnosis, doctor. So what, what tends to happen? Well, again, in, when it comes to treatment, uh, I would say very important is to understand which patient benefits from which uh, course of treatment. Mm -hmm. Uh, the first most important thing, if you go for non-surgical treatment, because we have surgical and non-surgical, if you elect to go for non-surgical treatment, again, depending upon the patient and situation, uh, the first most important emphasis that I would have is about the weight management. Because the more the weight it is on the body, the more strain it is going to get on the joints. Uh, when on the other side, uh, there is a nutrition supplement, uh, which are rich in glucosamine and chondroitin. They are amazing. They are I, great. I, I take those. <laughs> <laughs> Good for joints. Yeah. And then um, apart from that, like, you know, uh, there are physical therapies like um, massage and hydrotherapy. Mm -hmm. That also plays a great role because the most important thing is with the sore uh, joint, um, dogs are always shifting more weight on the front one mm -hmm. and about the percentage like you know they weigh they, they carry like 60% of the body weight on the front one and 40% on the back one so when it's a sore joint then they shift more and more weight on the front one so in this respect like you know they lose the muscle mass so very important is to like you know take care of that okay. 
And if you talk about surgical treatment, then there are so many, and I would like to just mention a few of them. Uh, for the young patients who are below five months of age, uh, there is one con- there is one um, surgery. It's called JPS, uh, juvenile um, pubic symph- symphysiosis. And um, for the dogs who are in the age group of eight to eighteen months, uh, the treatment for them, which could be like uh, TPO, which is triple pelvic osteotomy. Well, I would say the most common one which we performed here in Dubai quite often uh, is basically FHO, which is femur, head and neck osteotomy. It's a surgery, a little bit invasive surgery, uh, but of course I would not recommend any dog who weighs more than 22 kg. So it's that. about the right treatment for the right patient. All right, John, we're going to go to the text line. G's been in touch saying, maybe a weird question for the vet, we'll be the judge of that, um, saying, I have an English girl bulldog called Maggie and very cute she is too. She's going to be starting her periods in the next couple of months. Do they go through a similar hormonal change in their cycle as we humans do? Basically, the dogs get PMT. <laughs> it would explain an awful lot on our house. Um, or is it just simply a case of having having the blood, for want of a better phrase? Well, again, uh, periods is quite common. Of course, like six to eight months is the time period where most of the dogs, they cycle. We call them heat cycle. Uh, it could last for two to four weeks. Uh, whereas the first blood spot, when you observe it, that is the first day of heat, which we count from there. Mm-hmm. Um, and usually the blood is visible for, again, it's variable. Sometimes it could be for five days, sometimes it could be seven days, sometimes it could be even up to 12 days. But the heat cycle, especially about this area, it can be even up to 21 days or, as I said, two weeks. So you are, she will be in heat, but she won't be wanting to, you know cry and eat bars of galaxy like like a no spin. no you'll be fine there no. should be no grumpiness from maggie no <laughs> um staying on that topic though nadia's been in touch saying i'm really starting to worry about my 18 month old girl dog being spayed she's really tiny and extremely nervous just leaving her with the vet will be hugely traumatic and i'm so scared something could go wrong um any words of wisdom would be greatly appreciated so spaying a little dog i don't know what breed it is but she just say she's tiny Right. I would say spaying is very important. And I would say most of the dog, all of the dogs here in Dubai, they should be spayed because, again, it will also prevent unwanting breeding, first of all. And we've just been talking about heat there. And in cats, this can be particularly uncomfortable. But, you know, for dogs as well, you know, avoiding that. Yeah, that's correct. And I would say, like, of course, like this is the most common procedure that most of the clinics here in Dubai we perform. So it's very safe. Please do not worry. Please do get her spayed. And of course, like, you know, you can uh, visit your primary vet care and we will explain yeah, all the all. things. The first most important thing, I think, for you as as pet owner, the worrisome is the anesthesia. But prior to anesthesia, there will be blood work, which will be run just to make sure that everything is perfectly fine. And then they will explain you about the fasting, uh, how much you need to withhold the food before the surgery. And it's a common procedure. We all perform and don't worry about it. Things are going to be all fine. I think that's really good advice. Go and have a chat, talk it through. Maybe even take your little one to get to the vets and be a bit more familiar with the space and you are doing the right thing. So all the very best. Let us know how it goes and let me know what kind of dog it is well, Nadia. Tom's been in touch. Not so much of a question, but I think good a good reminder here um, saying my cat Coco keeps eating the leaves off my house plants, gets sick and the plant dies, which... It's not good for the cat or the, or the plant, is it? What do we need to know about plants and animals in the home? What should never cross our threshold, John? Well, again, uh, I would say there is a long list of uh, plants which could be toxic for cats. Uh, the first one which comes in my head is lilies. So definitely stay away from them. And uh, again, there are also a few others. There is chrysanthemum, which is also a flower mm-hmm. and plant. So again, like that is also could be something bad. Uh, cats always, they love nibbling onto plants. 
uh, I would always suggest my clients like, you know, to be very careful uh, while choosing the plant uh, because many of them, they could be toxic and they would uh, cause like serious kind of uh, illnesses and it could even end up with kidney failure. Dr. John, I wanted to ask you, after being a vet for over a decade now and seeing countless animals come through your door, is there a breed of dog, I'm thinking in particular, that you would not be necessarily keen to have as a pet? Or if your best friend came and said, I'm looking to get a dog, is there a breed I should avoid? Well, it's a great question. And I would say um, a few years ago, I read somewhere, um, have a bulldog, support your local vet. <laughs> <laughs> putting putting vet children through university. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I would say like those all um, uh, brachycephalic, like with the punch face, um, mm-hmm. French bulldogs, English bulldogs. Um, I would not recommend them much, especially the English bulldogs. Um, again, because of their various uh, health conditions, uh, they are very much prone uh, to obesity. Then uh, many different kind of allergies, skin allergies mainly. And uh, of course, food intolerances and many other things. So I would, I would say, I would save a friend not to get a le- uh, not to get a f- um, bulldog. You need to have a big heart and deep pockets. Um, right, doctor. We are going to get the text on. I love this question from Shrader saying, "Hi, both. We're adopting a three-month-old cat over the weekend. Haven't had a cat since I was a little girl, so not really sure what to expect. He is litter trained, fairly well behaved, aside from being a bit excitable. Is he still a baby? I've got two kids who are ten and six. The cat currently lives with children and is really good with them." Any advice on catifying our home and family would be rec- well received. Thank you. Well, again, um, it's a very nice term that you use, catify the house. And catifying the house is actually making the nice environment for the cat, and which is cat-friendly. Mm-hmm. And when you talk about cat-friendly environment, uh, the first most important thing comes uh, in terms of a kitten. Please do get it fully uh, checked. Uh, by your local vet, uh, just check the vaccination history of the kitten, maybe the mother or the father also, if you can get it. Apart from that, please do select a good quality food for the kitten. That is very important. Please do go for uh, kitten food. Do what? not feed any random food. Tell us a little bit about that distinction between kitten food and, and cat food, because what are they getting in that kind of specific diet? Right. Well, kitten, again, they, of course, they have way higher protein values uh, and levels as compared to adult ones. And of course, if you feed a kitten food uh, to adult one, then of course, they're going to end up being obese. Uh, Whereas if you feed other way around, then the kitten will deprive of uh, lots of uh, important uh, amino acids, vitamins, and also protein. So I would strongly recommend to go for a kitten diet. There are different stages of it. Uh, You have stage one, two, and three. Well, again, stage one covers for one to four months. And then for four months, 12 months, you have stage two. So please do uh, get the kitten formula. What about wet versus dry food, John? Oh, it's a great uh, topic and a big uh, controversy. Um, I would say uh, for cats, I also start believing now. I would say six, seven years ago, I was also very much strict on the uh, dry food. But for the cats, uh, cat owners, I would definitely suggest them to go with the wet food as well. Or if you want to keep them only on dry food then please do make sure that you have enough water all the time because they are not great in drinking water which end up into many different kind of issues so food becomes the main source of hydration which is a big thing in this part of the world not not today we've got we've got some it's a bit damp outside today but in the in those warmer months yeah and there's all sorts of different things you can get in terms of maybe gadgets for the cat as well water fountains is anything that's been useful with your clients both 
furry and otherwise? What do you like? Yeah, well, uh, cats in general, like I would say one piece of advice that I always share with my clients is that please do not always keep food and water together. They should not be kept side, side by side. Because again, if it's kept side by side, whenever the cat is moving towards that corner, she's going to pick up the food not the water. Mm -hmm. So I always advise like, please keep the dry food on one side and wet food, uh, sorry, water in several areas, in a different area. Um, cats generally do not like stagnant water, especially in the balls. So they prefer more runny water. In that respect, fountains, they are really good and it comes very handy. Lastly, toileting, litter trays. How many and what, I don't know, what are the trends in litter right now, John? <laughs> Talk to us. <laughs> yeah, well, general rule of thumb is that uh, for one cat, you need 1.5 litter tray. So if you have two cats, then you need at least minimum three cat litters. Okay. Uh, it's very important also to keep it in a private area, uh, nor to keep it in a very common area, because as we like privacy, they also appreciate the privacy. Okay. Shraddha, I really hope that helps. Please send us a photo of your kitten when uh, when they arrive safely over the weekend. Um, we're talking about introducing cats and dogs now. Uh, good afternoon. We've got three cats and we're considering adopting a dog, but we're really worried that the cats will not accept the dog easily. Is there any good tips from the doctor? Well, uh, again, um, um, following the previous question, catifying the house, it's very important because for cats, everything needs to be kept the same. And it's a major change, especially if you go for a different species, like which is a dog, and you're planning to get a dog in your house. The first most important thing is please do give a lot of attention to your cats. Do not ignore them because this is the time where they are going to get affected if you're going to ignore them. And if you ignore them and they are affected, could that result in some undesirable behaviors? Absolutely. So they, they lead to like, you know, many different kinds of behaviors. But the first one is they start spraying. And then again, like um, there is also a very common condition which is present in humans as well. It's called idiopathic cystitis, feline idiopathic cystitis, mm. and which is purely pretty much behavior related. And again, can you imagine like with just being stressed, cat can start peeing blood. So they get a UTI from being stressed out. Absolutely, absolutely. Not fun. But there are ways of doing it. And you're saying catifying. So making sure that they've got space to feel away from that dog, much as you were saying to Shadra about you know, being away from, from kids and any stresses. What about introducing slowly, you know, in terms of, I don't know, rooms or even pheromones, things that can help ease things a little bit? Yeah, exactly. So again, everything has to be done step by step. So I would first advise like, you know, please do get some toys of the dog or maybe the towel the dog is using and then bring it to the house and leave it in the common area where the cats can have access to it. And then as you get the dog, please do not introduce them directly. Mm -hmm. Keep it separately, little by little, just observe the behavior of the cat. When you brought the toys or the bedding, observe how your cat is behaving to that. If they get furious, by just sniffing it, then definitely give them a little bit time. Do get those kind of spray, the calming sprays. There are plenty of them available in the market. A uh, few of them, they're really nice. They're really good. And there are also some plugins that you can use in the house. So that will also help them to calm down with this kind of stressful. But please take, let them take their time and do not rush. I love the fact that you're talking about adopting a dog as well, because that means, especially if you're getting an older dog, be able to see the temperament of that animal, you know, be able to understand and maybe even foster or if they have been fostered to understand what they're like with other pets. Please keep us posted on this. We're talking toileting now. Um, a message here saying we've got a 
one and a half year old male dog who used to pee on the balcony but now peeing all over the house especially on upright items I've got no more information to that and it's probably more of a behavioural issue than a health issue but is it worth going to the vet to get checked out? Yeah of course like you know when uh, I would say I, I always try to look into it like they're trying to communicate with us they're trying to tell us something uh, of course it's very important for you to visit your primary care vet uh, they can run a urinalysis, they can do a few tests also just to find out that if everything is all right and it's not some sort of medical condition, it's only behavior. And if it is behavior, then of course you need, you would have to consult some behaviorist on that. A message here from Ashwin, John saying, our five-month-old puppy vomited for the first time today. First it was her <coughs> breakfast, kibble, then later on yellow bile twice. She's not interested in her food, having a little taste of water. <coughs> in herself, she's okay. Walked her this morning, she's following the kids around as normal. Poos are normal, haven't changed any food she's due at the vets on saturday for a quick checkup but should i take her in before then well it's a great question and especially for the new pet owners and uh, and uh, and the young puppies uh, if the puppy is five months old i would definitely first of all if the vaccination all is perfectly fine then i wouldn't worry that much uh, some of the dogs they end up eating too fast and of course when they eat too fast they can vomit and if it's like undigested kind of food that you have or you have observed, then it's more like a regurgitation, which is quite common for them to have. Some of the time, um, it is followed by a little bit of bile acid, which is there, which we call it acid reflux. And again, like, of course, the stomach is empty. So again, it's just like going to puke it. Mm -hmm. As long as the puppy is acting perfectly fine, there is no furthermore vomitings and diarrhea and dog is good in energy. I would say you can observe uh, give it a time. If all goes well, nothing to be worried. But if he starts again vomiting or there's a diarrhea, please do visit your primary okay. care. Vet. All the very best. Um, message from Zoe saying, great timing both. Heard your chat about hip dysplasia. Our two-year-old cross Max, and she says, is very whippet-like, um, is suddenly struggling to climb on the sofa in bed and up the stairs. Normally a very energetic pup. Loves to run outside, but he's getting tentative and slow. Today he wanted to come upstairs, but stood at the bottom whining until we encouraged him to walk up slowly. He's walking normally. We've examined his legs and hips and he shows no sign of pain. Would welcome any insights. Is it time to go in for a checkup? It's from Zoe. So a two-year-old cross called Max. All right. Well, again, this kind of uh, uh, situation, like when you are observing, like, you know, they they were doing something before and they are not doing now. For example, they were jumping on the bed and now they are no more doing that. It definitely calls for some sort of investigation, like, you know, and I would say that I would pinpoint more on the hip dysplasia, like in that respect, because uh, it is a condition which develops and progress slowly. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, of course, can be controlled, can be helped. But over the period of time, more delaying definitely leads to progression. I would also like to mention here about the weight. If the weight has been increased, that could also be one of the leading mm -hmm. factor or can be contributing in this respect. So um, I would say like, you know, if the dog was acting perfectly fine before and doing all the things and now a little bit more hesitant, please do definitely get it checked and investigate. John, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you with us this afternoon. Will you come back? It's yeah. a pleasure, Helen, to be here. Of course, I would love to be part of it. Well, we've got a tough job now. We're going to look through some photos. I don't even think we can pick a picture that was a winner today because all these animals are just absolutely gorgeous. We might let the computer do the picking, but I can say, Glenn, you sent in a beautiful black cat. We've had, we've had it all. Cheeky, cheeky beagles. We've had dashhounds warming themselves in front of a heater. Looks like you're at the concert. But we are going to be picking a winner in just a couple of minutes for that brilliant prize from Purina Proplan. Um, you can find Dr. Sahil John there at Pet First Veterinary Clinic on Hesser Street. Um, so do get in contact with him if you've got any needs around your furry friends.
And thank you for downloading this episode of the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Don't forget, you can subscribe. You'll get it direct to your phone as soon as it's out. And you can listen to me live on Dubai Eye 103.8, Monday to Friday between 2 and 5 p.m. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.